Hello, my name is Matt Burgess and I am a genetic counsellor based in Melbourne, Australia. And this is a podcast called Demystifying Genetics. And today my guest is Professor Martin Delaticki. Uh, Martin graduated from the University of Melbourne with a medical degree in 1988 and with a PhD in 1999. And today our conversation focuses on ataxia and in particular Friedrich's ataxia. Um, there's some interesting research that we spoke about with a particular um, chemical or drug called um, resveratrol. And uh, we also talk about spinal cerebellar ataxia type 3. Hello, Martin. Hello, Matthew. Thank you for having me. Now, um, I'm going to start with a story, which, um, or start with something that I thought I would never do on this podcast, but it's to talk about football. <laughs> um, I don't know if you remember the first day that we started working together and, and what happened, or if you well, know what it, I'm going it, to say. It's kind of coming back, but <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> So for those of you who don't know, um, I was living in Sydney, Australia, and I um, was lucky enough to get a job in Melbourne. And Melbourne is the home of um, Australian football or Aussie rules or AFL. And as I was moving, I thought, oh, okay, I'm moving to Melbourne. I need to um, pick a football team, I, I wonder who I'm going to pick. Um, and then I kind of thought, oh, you know, the interview, uh, the, the universe will show me the way. Um, I, I will find a, a team somehow. And then when I turned up on my first day, um, I remember you pointed me towards a picture on your wall of the Carlton football team and you said, this will be the team you will go for. And I thought, okay. Um, but now and what I'd... terrible advice that was. <laughs> I don't know how good that was because, um, yeah, we're sort of coming last on the ladder at the moment. Yeah, I know, but it's good to start low and then when good things happen, you'll have been through the hard times. So I'm, it was a lesson in life that I'm teaching you, Matthew. It's something about resilience or... Resilience, yes. exactly. <laughs> Excellent. But um, changing tack a little bit, um, I'd really like to talk to you today about ataxia. Um so, uh, I know that's sort of like a, a broad, very broad introduction, but um, can you tell me about ataxia and how your interest in this um, area sort of came about? Yes, so ataxia is the medical term for incoordination or unsteadiness. So, uh, we have all seen ataxic people at three in the morning outside nightclubs, etc., because the most common cause is acute injury to the brain, such as by alcohol. But there are many genetic causes of ataxia that don't improve with a good night's sleep. Uh, and I got into the field uh, in the mid-90s when uh, my then boss at Murdoch Institute, Bob Williamson, who'd come from London, I said, what should I do my PhD? And he said, you should do it in Friedrich's ataxia. And being an obedient young man, I obeyed him and I've uh, worked <laughs> in Friedrich Ataxia for the last uh, 20 years, and it's been an incredibly exciting time. But there are many genetic causes of ataxia other than Friedrich's ataxia, uh, and uh, some of these are recessive, like Friedrich's ataxia, meaning you need two faulty genes to have it, whereas others are dominant, meaning you only need one faulty gene. And so the dominant ataxias tend to affect multiple generations, whereas the recessive ones like Friedrich's ataxia tends to affect one generation. 
And so had you um, worked with many families with Friedrich's ataxia before you started your PhD? Uh, if I had, I don't remember it. Uh, I certainly remember it being on various lists when I was studying to be a physician. And so in Friedrich's ataxia, it has the rare combination of brisk uh, knee jerks in some people and absent ankle jerks and upgoing plantar responses with absent ankle jerks. And so I remember it being on lists like that. But uh, So I might just stop you there because I, I think I know what you mean. But So when you're doing a neurological consult or exam, you have a, a little plastic hammer that you sort of um, test people's reflexes. Is that what you mean when you... That's absolutely correct. So... So you uh, bang the front of the knee and the leg could, should give a little jump. Uh, but in some people with Friedrichs, it gives a very big jump and in others, it doesn't give a jump at all. Uh, and when you tickle the bottom of the foot, the big toe should bend downwards. But in people with Friedrichs, it often bends upwards. So these are the obscure uh, tests that particularly neurologists do. So I knew about the existence of Friedrichs ataxia, but I can't remember definitely seeing anyone before I started working on it in the mid-90s. Okay. And, and what was the, the, the question that you were looking at in your um, study with your PhD? So it initially started that uh, I was going to develop genetic therapies for uh, Friedrich ataxia and I had big aims. And uh, the way we were going to do it was using... Um, the non-toxic fragment of tetanus toxin. I started working on that, but then I went to a conference in uh, Montreal and there was this big discovery. So the gene had just been discovered a year before and there was a big discovery uh, that there was too much iron in mitochondria. So mitochondria are the little batteries in cells. And uh, it's a really an interesting story that a very young man who was not even a graduate of university, he was doing a summer job during his university degree, uh, was working in a lab in Utah that were interested in iron and they were just knocking out random genes in yeast and they knocked out this gene and there was enormously increased mitochondrial iron and they looked up which gene it was and lo and behold it was the yeast Friedrich ataxia gene. Mm. And so this completely changed the course of my PhD and I started looking at iron levels in cells from people with Friedrich ataxia and we found that the same thing that was true in yeast was true in people with Friedrichs. And uh, so this led to various lines of investigation. I guess it's a great example of how science you can start looking at one thing, but change direction when your nose takes you in a new direction. <laughs> so that was exciting times. Excellent. Um, so one of the things I love about you is that you are involved with so many different um, things. Like um, you, you have like this broad interest. So you're a medical doctor, a, a clinical geneticist, and so you see people um, and help people with um, genetic conditions. But um, you also are involved with management and um, directing a, a, a large clinical genetic service in Melbourne. Um, but you're also really interested in different areas of research. And um, I was just wondering if you can sort of tell me what areas of research that you're working on at the moment. Yeah, well, yeah, I've probably got far too many interests and spread myself <laughs> far too thin. Um, but anyway, as I say, I've always gone where my nose takes me. So we just finished a study 
in a condition called hemochromatosis. So hemochromatosis is the most common uh, genetic condition amongst individuals of European descent. And in hemochromatosis, there's too much iron in the body and this can get deposited in the uh, brain, sorry, in the uh, heart, in the liver, uh, in joints, uh, and can cause anywhere between no symptoms through to cirrhosis of the liver, liver cancer, diabetes, and many other symptoms. And you might think that I'm obsessed with iron, but in fact, I got into Friedrichs without an interest in iron, and I got into hemochromatosis because of my interest in genetic screening. But uh, coincidentally, both of them have iron involved. And so if people have very high iron levels, no one would argue that they should be treated. And the treatment's really quite simple. It's a matter of giving blood because the red cells in blood have very high iron levels. So if you give a unit of blood, you remove a significant amount of iron from the body. Uh, And so if someone has very high iron levels where they're at high risk of liver cirrhosis, everyone would agree to treat them. But what was less clear is whether people who have iron levels that are a bit high but not very high, need to be treated. And so we worked out a way of doing a blinded study. That means that the people having the treatment didn't know if we were removing iron or not. And uh, we had half the people reduced, we reduced their iron in the body and the other half we didn't. Mm -hmm. And we did all sorts of measures before and after to see if there was benefits. And we found that indeed those who did have iron removed had a number of benefits, including symptoms that they reported on a scale called the Modified Fatigue Impact Scale, as well as various blood tests that we did. Uh, And so this study now has shown that, yes, if you have mildly increased iron from hemochromatosis, you should be treated. And so uh, we're now uh, on the path to uh, doing a, a larger study that we've applied for funding to do to do screen a very large number of people uh, to see how we can go about doing screening in the community now that we know there are, we estimate, about 85,000 Australians who would benefit from such treatment and about a million people in the US and a million in Europe. Wow. That's fantastic. And, you know, like that's research, but it, it sounds like, you know, it has the potential to to really sort of cross over into, um, you know, into the real world and sort of have implications for, for people out there in the community. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, the, the buzzword is translational research, so research that can go from uh, being a, a research study to offering uh, new treatments in the clinic. Uh, and so uh, that's certainly what... Uh, my team is is all about is finding new ways to treat things and then to to put that in the clinic. Uh, Other studies that we've got going, uh, we're doing a trial of a medication called resveratrol for Friedrich's ataxia. So resveratrol is a very famous uh, naturally occurring medication and it's famous because it's in red wine. And uh, so there are theories that it's resveratrol in red wine that mean that French people who have a very high-fat diet, have, but have a, very, a relatively low level of heart disease, people have wondered if this is due to resveratrol. And so we trialled resveratrol in Friedrich's ataxia and had a hint of benefit, and now we're going to do a placebo-controlled trial. But I always 
warn people not to try to get the dose of resveratrol we're going to use uh, <laughs> through drinking wine because you would need to drink a thousand bottles of red wine a day to get the dose. So okay, so we think the tablet is a safer way of going. That, that's interesting because I, I I knew that we would be talking about this today, and um, I was googling um, resveratrol the other day and sort of um, looking at different bits and pieces sort of out there. And um, there are a few blogs that were talking about um, the benefit of drinking red wine when you've got a cold. And I don't know if you can tell or if you can hear, but I'm sort of just getting over a, a cold. And I thought, I'm a man of science. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel sick. You know, I, I'm stuffed up and I, I, I've got a cold. But I'm going to see if, you know, this works because, uh, you know, the last thing I want to do is have a glass of red wine, but, you know, I'll see what ha- what happens. And All in the name of science. All in the name of science. And the article says, you know, not only does it, it help because of the resveratrol in the red wine, but you'll also get a buzz. And, yeah, I don't think I'll be trying that again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> didn't work. Oh, well, when we get our... Yeah, spectacular formulation of resveratrol that has very good ability to get into the bloodstream. I, I'll uh, see if I can get you some for your next yeah. <laughs> Is that uh, an association you'd heard before about the link between um, resveratrol and um, colds? No, I haven't heard about that one, but there's an enormous literature about trying resveratrol in numerous different um, situations, including Alzheimer's disease, Huntington's disease. So, uh, it's uh, really being tried broadly, but also people have tried to find the bit of resveratrol that does the most good and, and make new medications that are much more powerful. So uh, there's a lot of excitement around resveratrol and, and its sisters and brothers that uh, will hopefully uh, get to the clinic and uh, improve people's lives. And it's probably most famous for uh, being found to increase the lifespan of of uh, a number of species. So for, they started with yeast and then they went to bacteria and finally they showed that mice have a longer lifespan if treated with resveratrol. And that work was led by an Australian guy called David Sinclair who's really a remarkable scientist who's now based at Harvard. Uh, and he's uh, done really amazing work with resveratrol and other similar medications. Mm. Interesting. Yes, but I think I will sort of maybe just have my red wine when I'm feeling um, A-OK and not sick with a, a cold. Sounds a good plan. Now, um, are you involved with rehab um, of studies looking at how to physically help people with ataxia? Yeah, so uh, I've got uh, a wonderful colleague called Sarah Milne, who's a physiotherapist, and Sarah did her PhD uh, with me and Sarah uh, did a study where she did intense physiotherapy for six weeks with people with Friedrichs and half the people started straight away and half the people waited six weeks so she could compare the waiting period to the active period and she showed some benefit from her physiotherapy that was done uh, at a rehab centre in Melbourne where people spent some of the time in the water and some on the land. And so then we applied to do a much bigger study, uh, not just of Friedrich's ataxia but other genetic ataxias, and we were fortunate to get funding from the government to do that study. So we're about to embark on that study, and that will be done in uh, Melbourne, Sydney, Perth, uh, 
and then we're um, going to be working with a group of Indigenous Australians. So there's a form of genetic ataxia called Mercado Joseph disease, sometimes called spinocerebellar ataxia type 3. And this is uh, present in many populations, but one group who have this are a group of Indigenous Australians, mainly in the very north of Australia, mm-hmm. uh, in Darwin and Groot Island. And so uh, we're going to be working with uh, that group as well to look at uh, rehabilitation for for those individuals. So on Groot Island, one in 53 people have uh, ataxia. So that's probably the highest incidence of ataxia in the world. Mm. Yeah, and so you work with a great genetic counsellor who is involved with um, working up in Darwin and sort of in the Northern Territory. Um, and is it, it's Lindsay, isn't it? Lindsay Tour, yep. yep. She's a fantastic genetic counsellor and has really... Uh, become uh, integrated into that community and uh, does some amazing work with predictive testing uh, in those communities. So I'm not sure if you talk to your audience about predictive testing, but... No, not testing. not a lot, actually. Um, we have, yeah, like I've covered sort of different areas of, of testing, but I haven't actually defined what predictive testing is and it hasn't really come up yet. So, yeah, let's talk about that. Well, predictive testing is the ability to test someone who's at risk of a genetic condition to know if they're going to develop it so they don't have symptoms at the time. So the best example uh, is Huntington disease or the most common example where each child of a person with the condition has a 50% chance of having the condition and a 50% chance not to. And uh, so we know that most people at risk of these conditions choose not to have predictive testing. So we did a study uh, 10 or more years ago where we found only about 15% of people at risk of these conditions where there's no treatment to prevent or delay the onset choose to have treatment. And so normally uh, when you and I do predictive testing together, we'll see people in clinic and talk through the issues, maybe see them a couple of times and then provide the result. Uh, But when Lindsay does it in... um, in uh, some very remote communities in the north of Australia, uh, these uh, sitting in a in a clinic in the capital city is is out of the question. And she's mm. got some wonderful photos of doing predictive testing on beaches uh, in, in Northern Territory, and you know really meeting the needs of that community. And uh, she's really doing an incredible job up there. It's amazing because, you know, like in genetic counselling, we talk about sort of being patient-centred or, you know, patient-focused genetic counselling. But, um, yeah, working in Melbourne or, you know, in a large city, like logistically, we try and be as patient-focused as we can, but we are saying you need to come to us, you need to come to us on this day between this time and, you know, this is what this is how we'll make it work. But... You know what she's doing up in, um, you know, in northern Australia is it looks amazing. Like I've heard Lindsay talk a, a couple of times about sort of some of the the challenges and the different ways of working, and it's just you know that was not covered when I did predictive testing at uni. You know, like we did not talk about um, that sort of thing. It's just amazing. It is amazing, and I, I'm fortunate to spend a week a year where we go and do clinics in Darwin and Alice Springs and uh, 
it is, I think, my favourite week of the year in terms of my work. It's just a completely different set of conditions, a completely different way of working, and it's, it's absolutely fabulous to do. So uh, it's, uh, as you say, it's it's doing things to meet the needs of people, not, not our own our set ways and our own methods. You know, I think it's really important in, in all medicine to to be able to do that. And I think... Um you know, an interesting thing that sort of ties onto that was, um, you know, when people think of um, Professor Manandela Tiki, I think they think Friedrich's ataxia and hemochromatosis, but they also think about um, screening in the community, and that's something that you've been involved with for a long time. Um, but since we've been working together, the screening program has sort of changed from, um, you know, screening children or people in the Jewish community when they're at school um, to changing that model because of how the genetic testing technology has changed? Yeah, I mean, when we started screening, we started screening in the late 90s um, for, for a condition called Tay-Sachs disease. So it's the recessive condition where both parents need to be carriers. And if a child has Tay-Sachs disease, it's a devastating condition where death uh, usually occurs in the first few years of life. And we were able to start screening by measuring blood levels of an enzyme. Then we moved to a genetic test. Then we started testing for a number of other conditions. Uh, now we can test for many, many hundreds of conditions in one test. And so uh, screening is completely changing uh, how it's being done, the breadth of it, the ability for couples to... Uh, have choice about uh, whether or not they want to have screening, if they have screening, uh, whether or not they want to have testing of an established pregnancy or now, of course, uh, using IVF, it's possible to test embryos and only uh, implant embryos that don't have the genetic predisposition. So uh, the choices people have now are uh, incredible compared to as recently as uh, 20 years ago and of course it's only 30 years ago that the first genetic testing became possible so it's been a remarkable period in in humanity uh, in terms of genetics and what it can offer. Mm. And what about clinical trials? Are, are you doing research or are you involved with um, sort of clinical trials and research as well? Yeah so we're involved in quite a few different clinical trials. So the, the rehabilitation study we'll be doing is a randomised trial. So some people will get intense uh, rehabilitation therapy and others won't. Uh, we're involved in two medication trials in Friedrichsataxis. I mentioned resveratrol and we're working with a, a US company called Riata on a particular medication that they've developed in Friedrichsataxia. Uh, the hemochromatosis trial that we've finished um, was a randomised trial, so I think clinical trials is you know really uh, the next phase of genetic uh, research, and we're now discovering. When I say we, much cleverer people than me are discovering treatments based on understanding the genetics of a particular condition, and the only way to know if they work is to to design proper randomised uh, blinded clinical trials. So double blinded means the person. Uh, in the trial doesn't know whether they're getting the medication or placebo and the person administering the treatment doesn't know either and you know, doing very rigorous trials is critical to uh, to 
know where the treatments work and get them into the clinic as quickly as possible. Mm, mm. And I just think it's fascinating the the different um, research that's out there about clinical genetics and um I think that it's important as as a genetic counsellor, I think that, you know, it's important that we get um, really good, um, robust genetic counselling research published and sort of get it out there in the, the literature. And, um, you know, with a previous guest, we spoke about, um, you know, evidence-based genetic counselling. And a lot of the time we have a feeling or, um, you know, intuition that we're doing the right thing. But, you know, if we can back it up with the evidence from the literature, I think that that's really important. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, we were both involved in a study a few years ago where uh, there was a randomised trial of... Uh, communication in in genetic counselling and did uh, extra contact with families, assist in family communication. And, and you know, the trial showed that, yes, uh, those who had extra communication with a clinical geneticist uh, were able to communicate with the family in a better way and in a, a broader way than people who didn't have that extra input. And I think, you know, those sort of studies are really important, as you say, uh, evidence base. Um, we're all biased in how we think we should do things, and uh, we think we're doing a good job. But but I think any research that can be done to confirm the best way to do things is is absolutely uh, critical. And I think genetic counselling is an area. You know, it's a new profession relatively to many other areas in health. But uh, I think there are a lot of fantastic. Uh, fantastic academic genetic counsellors uh, both here and overseas who are doing fantastic work to assist us in knowing the best way to do our work. So you're a medical doctor, you're a, a clinical geneticist, but you provide genetic counselling and um, there are other um, professions that also provide genetic counselling, but there are also genetic counsellors that do genetic counselling. And just wondering what you think makes a good genetic counsellor and what what you like about working with genetic counsellors. Well, I think, you know, what makes a good genetic counsellor is a person who's a good person. I think that's what makes a good clinical geneticist, what makes what's a good dermatologist, a good neurologist, etc. I think, you know, having that ability to connect with people and have empathy uh, and be a good communicator is uh, very important. And, you know, we uh, work very closely, clinical geneticists and genetic counsellors, uh, to provide a, a holistic approach to uh, managing individuals and families. I think as a profession, we're very much uh, family-focused, so not just the person sitting in front of us, but what's the impact of what we're doing on uh, another person. So, you know, in genetics, you can do a test on one person that can reveal information about another person, and, and we have to be very mindful of that. So I think, you know, there's a fantastic group of genetic counsellors in Melbourne who I've had the absolute privilege to work with over many years. Some of them called Matthew, and uh, they, uh, it's just a, a great team to work with. And uh, I think, uh, as I say, to provide the, the, the holistic approach, the, the really uh, thorough approach to families and following up families and individuals to, to uh, help them through what is often very difficult uh, decisions and difficult 
diagnoses and difficult uh, times to, to deal with news about genetic conditions in individuals and families. Mm. And I'm just wondering if you could, like, like I'm sure other people ask you this as well, but, you know, working in clinical genetics, do you have a case or a family that kind of, um, you know, sticks in your mind of getting a really good outcome for people? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I mean, there have been, you know, my hair is very grey because I'm old and so I've seen many, many families in my career. Uh, but, you know, I think there's just so many times when it's not only when you can tell people that they don't have the gene for Huntington disease or Alzheimer's disease or breast cancer that, 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 that you feel like you've done a good job, but helping people through when you tell them you do have the gene for these devastating conditions. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, I think a very important part of all of our, our work, uh, giving people hope, uh, you know, so working in Friedrich Ataxia, you know, when I started, the gene wasn't discovered. We didn't know really anything, and now we're doing so many trials around the world, uh, which gives just such incredible hope. And you know, we're hopeful that uh, in the next uh, 18 to two months to two years, that we'll be doing gene therapy trials in Friedrich Ataxia, uh, which is something that, you know, as I said, I started my PhD thinking about, and now uh, we'll be hopefully doing those trials. And there's some absolutely amazing uh, therapies coming through. So spinal muscular atrophy, you know, a devastating condition with children dying before two years of age with a new medication called Nusinursa, which is a genetic therapy injected into the spinal fluid. And, you know, these children are, uh, uh, are doing incredibly well at two, three, four years of age now. So, you know, I think uh, it's an amazing time and uh, incredible things are happening and it's exciting to be working in this era, no doubt about it. Mm, no, I completely agree. I think that it is exciting that we are able to say that we can be involved with providing people with hope and optimism. And, you know, I, I think there's still, um, you know, some people out there that are saying, oh, you know, what's the, the point or, of having a genetic test or, you know, you can't do anything. But um, I think I can challenge that and say, you know, if we can provide people with um, that hope and optimism, you know, that that's a really important thing. It's a lovely thing for people to have. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, I think um, what a great place to, to finish up. Um, so I'd like to say thank you very much um, for joining me on the podcast today. And yeah, it's been a pleasure having the first guest that hasn't been a genetic counsellor on here. I'm deeply honoured and uh, I uh, thank you so much for having me on your podcast, Matthew. Excellent. Thanks, Martin. Bye-bye. All the best. As usual, uh, the information that you've heard today, if you'd like any more questions um, answered or if you'd like to ask me a question, um, I will have a fact sheet online um, and you can access that fact sheet and more information about what we spoke about at insightgenomica.com.au. 